Welcome to Indie Beauty Radio with your host, Rachel Whitaker, founder of the Indie Beauty Delivers community. I'm going to introduce you to uh, Elsie and Dom, so you're going to have to wave. Elsie, waving. Dom, waving. (laughs) Um, So hopefully you'll be able to see them. So Elsie and Dom are from um, the founders of Clean Beauty and by B, am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah, I am. Well <laughs> um, and they are going to talk about that. Uh, they're going to give you far more background than I'm going to give you, and they're going to let you know how they've been established, uh, where they are in their business now. Why I've got them in today to speak to you guys is because they are quite experienced in uh, raising money from investors, and they've so kindly volunteered to um, come along and uh, spend uh, spend this hour with us and just uh, share their experiences and answer any questions that you've got. So very much like last week where we had Rachel on, what I'm going to do is while the girls are speaking, I'll mute us all out so that there's no other sound coming. And if you've got any questions while they're speaking, whack them in the chat box um, and I will um, get them through to the girls um, when when there's a relevant sort of pause. Um, so, without further ado, I'll hand over to you ladies, and I'm going to mute the rest of you, and uh, we'll, I'll see you in a minute. So, yeah, so hi, um, as Rachel said, I'm Elsie, and this is Dominica, and we are co-founders of Clean Beauty Co. and Beauty. Um So, yeah, maybe if I kick off, like, with the spiel and stuff, and then we can get into the nitty-gritty of... Um, of our kind of experience of fundraising so far. Um, I wouldn't say that we're like mega experienced in it, but we've gone through it. Um, and yeah, it's, I guess there's a lot that we can kind of like share in terms of our learnings and our advice. Um, so we, um, as a company, um, I don't know if you guys know much about us, but we started out um, as Clean Beauty Co, um, which was a blog um, focused on making our own beauty products. Um, so we're actually both from advertising backgrounds and we met working together and we um, I guess kind of like had an interest in natural beauty which was really an extension of a general wellness interest so it was at the time when the kind of wellness and fitness and food bloggers were sort of hitting the scene and um, we were kind of really interested in that and then I guess naturally that started to evolve to um, you know our beauty products and looking at what was in them and um, kind of wanting a bit of transparency there um so we started out our kind of like blogging life literally in the kitchen whipping up like pretty basic stuff at the time so like avocado hair masks and that kind of thing um but i guess as our experience and um, developed our kind of knowledge and um, developed as well um, and we're now both trained um natural skincare formulators so we studied with formula botanica um and we spent a couple of years sort of building up um uh, a content platform so um, mainly through social and through a blog um and <laughs> Rachel is like beady eyed trying to find out. Maybe it was Stella. Okay, the banging stop. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we, we kind of built up this platform for a couple of years. So we built up um, a following across social channels and we were sharing our sort of recipes and stuff. Um, and at the time, we were both still working. And so we were sort of biding our time. And we knew that because of the kind of um, reaction that we were getting to Clean Beauty Co, that um, there was definitely an interest in it. Um, And we kind of knew that a skincare line would be on the horizon for us, but we really wanted to understand the market before we kind of quit our jobs and and went out at full pelt. So um, we spent a lot of time trying a load of natural skincare, obviously making a load of our own natural skincare, um, speaking to our audience, speaking to our community, really understanding what was present and more importantly, what was sort of missing in the natural skincare market. Um, and about sort of summer last year or the year before, um, we decided that, um, sorry, we're just, <laughs> we're in our office right now, so we're just making sure there's not no background noise. Um, so yeah, we decided that, um, we wanted to launch a line and from our kind of experience, what we really identified was that, um, there were sort of natural skincare, um, market. There were a load of companies doing some amazing things with some really wonderful formulations, amazing ingredients, like really, really lovely products, but that actually from the kind of branding side they hadn't all necessarily nailed it and that there was a disconnect between a kind of um 
millennial or kind of beauty loving audience and a natural beauty loving audience and i think there was a bit of a misconception in that people thought that natural beauty meant that you were compromising on quality and that it wouldn't necessarily work and that it was maybe a little bit alternative um and through going through our journey of sort of testing loads of natural beauty stuff and making our own products we knew that that wasn't true like the efficacy of natural products that is like you know, miles ahead of any of the high street brands that we were using. So what we wanted to do was start a brand that, um, that upheld really kind of like strong ethics in terms of being natural, being vegan, being eco-friendly, but also that felt um, fresh and interesting and felt like a beauty product that didn't, rather than feeling like a health product, if that makes sense. So, um, and, and for us, you know, we really felt that that didn't exist. Um, and I would still say it's hard to kind of pinpoint our competitors because um, there aren't many. There are more so now, but there aren't many that kind of speak to more of a mainstream audience, but that are 100% natural. So, um, so that was uh, September 2016. We both decided to quit our jobs um, and start this skincare range, which um, at the time we didn't know would be called it, but is now called Bybe. Um, and Bybe stands for Bybe Insiders. So it's really about um, the fact that, you know, we've come from the sort of blogging side of the things. And we do feel like we're insiders, particularly in the natural beauty industry. But also it's a kind of nod to the fact that we believe that what makes up really great beauty products is what's inside them. Um, it's all about the ingredients. So um we launched our full product line last summer um so it's still only like i don't know six or seven months old um we've got nine SKUs now um and the last three or four months has been um, really exciting for us because we've really started to ramp up our wholesale strategy so um we are now stocked in harvey nichols house of fraser asos urban outfitters olive bonus anthropology uh and um riley rose which is um forever 21's answer to a beauty store um among other kind of small um independent beauty stores as well so um that's really exciting for us so yeah that's us sorry I've gone um but that's the background i guess so you kind of know that we've got this two-pronged approach and clean beauty case still exists so we still share we still run that um whole platform and it's actually now um a bit of a kind of content platform so it feels a little bit like an online magazine but for natural beauty so we share reviews on like loads of different products and um, we still share recipes we still share kind of advice and tips and stuff and we're very much at the forefront of that as founders so that's that's our story um in terms of our funding story um, <laughs> i guess that began like as soon as we started really didn't it yeah i think the thing is with beauty brands particularly when you know you're generating products and, and trying to manufacture them externally you do need upfront capital and there's not really any way around that um obviously we negotiated as hard as we could on payment terms and and not paying for many things up front before we had the opportunity to sell the products and recoup some of the money but i mean it is a, a kind of like a cash game at the start for sure so if you haven't already organized your finances pre-launch i mean it's this is something that you should definitely be doing because money goes fast and you know everyone asks for money up front when you're a startup basically so we realized quite early on that we needed money to launch Bybee um, and at that point we were probably too early stage to go necessarily for funding because um, or kind of equity funding because we hadn't got a fully fleshed out idea of what the brand was going to look like we hadn't necessarily formulated all the products or done the branding so we, we didn't have a concept really to take to investors at that point so rather than um, kind of trying give away equity in a business that hadn't really fully formed yet um we investigated kind of alternative funding and we ended up going with a virgin startup loan um which was a great experience both through the application process and the community that we've still you know become a part of um after getting the funding so virgin has given us tons of opportunities um including lc interviewing rich branson which was really exciting and they always are keen for us to kind of like talk and share our experiences so while we did get you know a substantial amount of um a loan from them you know the experience was definitely worth it as well um so we both secured um 25k each in a loan which we're still paying off through the business but um you know the repayments are really manageable the interest rate is really um reasonable seeing as it's unsecured business loans so I think as a first port of call, it's definitely the best option. And if you have multiple founders in your business, it enables you to take more money as a loan. So if you're a sole founder, the most you can take is 25K, which isn't 
you know, it can get you somewhere, but it, it's going to run out quickly for sure. Um, I think just one note on that as well in terms of um, like what it means for you as an individual, um, just because I guess we weren't like totally aware of this at the time. Um, it, they obviously give you the loan based on your business, but it is actually a personal loan. It's not a business loan. Um, so you have to, you will only, you're only granted it um, like based on your business plan, but actually the, the actual credit is given to you as an individual. So that 25 grand will then sit on your credit file. So if you are then planning to get any further individual personal credit further down the line, um, just be aware of that. I basically tried to get a mortgage like six months later and they were like, no, because you got loads of, you got loads of debt. I was like, oh my God, I thought it was on the business. So just like, just so, you know, if somebody had told me that, it's just useful to know. It actually doesn't change, you know, much, but it, it, it is just a, a good thing to bear in mind. Yeah. So because early stage, it's very, very difficult to get any sort of loan um, outside of Virgin. I mean, even now our revenue is probably about 40 times what it was um, when we, you know, applied for the Virgin loan. And it's still difficult for us to get financing from either a bank or any sort of financial institution. So it is definitely um, the best first step, I would say. Um, obviously, if you can get loans from friends and family, but, that, you know, that comes with its own kind of bucket of problems so um or could turn into problems so um i think virgin is a very because you take that risk on yourself and i think when you go later stages of funding it does reflect well that you're willing to put that risk against your own name it's kind of equivalent to you investing that kind of money into the business as like a director's loan or from your own personal savings i think it carries the same weight with people that then go to invest in your business further down the line because that is a question that you know, and it does carry weight. It's like, have you put your own neck on the line before we do? And I think when you go to angel investors or any sort of um, equity fundraise where they don't, you know, they are taking a risk, there's no repayment for them if the business fails, they will look for signs like that to show that you've also kind of um, invested a certain amount of risk as well. So that was our compromise because we were using our savings to live off essentially. We weren't take a sal taking a salary at that point, so we couldn't have invested our savings into the business. Um, so that was a great first option for us. And I think we, we bootstrapped in some ways between that and our first equity fundraise. We got a couple of really small loans and we kind of just, you know, did some crafty things because um, there was a point where we looked like we were not, not going to run out of money, but we definitely needed like some extra cash in the bank. So, um, you know, we kind of bootstrapped in that way until we did our first proper equity fundraise. Um, so we started meeting a ton of people. I guess we initially started the process through our own network. So just reaching out to people we knew that worked in finance or just had the connections that we thought could introduce us to investors, angel VCs, you know, you name it. We were meeting everyone. We were meeting people that we were like far too early for, people that would never invest in our business, but we were just taking every meeting that came um, across you know across our door so you know we went through an intense period of like two months of basically like almost meetings every day i would say if not like every second day just meeting anyone that had anything to do with financing um and eventually through a long process we established a small pool of individuals that were connected through us mainly through previous work actually or um kind of introduced to us so they're kind of like one connect all away from a direct connect um and we did an seis raise so again if you're not familiar with seis eis um, it's a scheme from the government which essentially encourages people at a low level to invest in startups um once an individual has invested in an seis um, eligible business, they can claim 50% of their investment back as tax relief. So literally on their next tax return, they input the amount that they invested in your business and they'll get a 50% refund, which is incredible for people that kind of want to get involved in, in startup funding, but don't necessarily want to have that huge risk or, you know, someone that's kind of got a 5, 10K floating around and they want to kind of take a punt. It's designed specifically for people like that and it makes it really accessible for not just angel investors, but just, you know, your kind of ordinary folk that want to invest in businesses. And I think the the great thing about it is is that as it's quite difficult to find good startups to invest in, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of brokers, there's a lot of like 
you know, um, communities and, and kind of like online spaces where you can find startups, but it's, it's very difficult to evaluate a startup if you've got no connection to the business or the founders. Whereas everyone that invested in our business knew us in some way, they'd either worked with us, they knew us personally, there was some connection there. So they felt, I guess, reassured, um, even more so taking on a, you know, quite a, a punt on a startup business because they knew our work ethic, they had been recommended, you know, there was some way that they had context to us as individuals, which was hugely beneficial. So, um, again, like as your first kind of seed round kicks off, definitely look within your own network because at that point you don't have a huge amount to show anyone. You know, we, we had tiny amounts of revenue. We had so much interest, but that's not, that doesn't necessarily translate to anything in an investor's eyes. It shows traction, but it doesn't show, show revenue. So, um, definitely leaning on people within your own network and just even sending out a blast you know, to your immediate network of like, hey, I'm fundraising, do you know anyone that would be interested, attach your deck, you never know where it goes. Um, so yeah, we raised 150K through SEIS and we'll shortly do an EIS round, which is similar conditions. The amount that you can raise is just more. With SEIS, it's max 150 for 50%. Um, back for your investors with EIS it's up to 3 million and it's 30% back for your investors so again the idea is that those amounts will be bigger but then you still get a sizable refund um, so we only really went I guess with one angel investor and the rest were people within our own network um, and that angel investor is is a mentor to us as well um, so he you know it doesn't put any um, constraints on the business he doesn't have um, any kind of you know, rights to instruct us in any way, but we often lean on him for advice because he has experience within our industry. Yeah, I was just gonna um, go back to on like how we found these people and um, like how to kind of go about that because it, it can often seem like um, pretty daunting to start off with and you kind of think, oh, that, you know, like nobody in my network that I know like has this money lying around to be able to invest in us, which is actually quite wrong. Like you wouldn't, you'd be so surprised by the amount of people that have sold a house or got a really decent like bonus on a last job or something. And they, they do have like money kind of sitting around. Um, so we had a number of people make up that 150K um, and, you know, a couple kind of came in with quite a weighty amount and then a load of other people just um, basically threw in like, you know, between like five and 30K um, for like for us. And yeah, as Tom says, like, then they are literally just people that we knew that, that happened to have some money. Um, so when we say like, kind of put yourself out there, like, so with our lead investor, for example, we met him through a presentation that we did at a really random event. And then somebody who came up to us afterwards who gave us her business card and we followed up with her and went for a coffee with her and then she'd just met him. So while you're fundraising, you need to be pretty open to like everything. And, you know, it might not be that these people do have money necessarily for you, but they will have tips. They might have their own network of their own and just be really open um, to kind of like putting yourself out there um, because you kind of don't know where, you know, where somebody's going to crop up basically. Um, so just be really like take every meeting, like it's time consuming and it's exhausting for sure. We were doing like breakfast meetings at seven, like all the way through the day and then like drink meetings in the evening. Like we were meeting with people that we knew or institutions that we knew would never invest in us, but you know, those individual people, they, as I say, all have networks of their own. So just don't be afraid to kind of be out and about there. Um, and then I think really harness social as well. Um, so using your own social channels to kind of advertise the fact that you're fundraising, using your business's social channels to advertise the fact that you're fundraising. Um, LinkedIn is a fantastic um, kind of platform for it, which makes a lot of sense. So we actually ran through um, a tech startup um, who we probably wouldn't advise talk, uh, talking to, but the, the fundamentally of their business and the way that they run is quite interesting. So you can actually export your contact email addresses from LinkedIn. So um, we can find the way you do it. We can follow up after this, but you basically just export them into an Excel and it has your entire LinkedIn network's email addresses. If you put together quite an interesting, like compelling email, you can basically just literally email everybody on your LinkedIn list with your pitch deck. That's what we did. And you wouldn't believe the people that come back from it. Like people you haven't worked with for years, like honestly, that are like, hey, like, it's so great. To, and, and it's admin and it's definitely a lot of work because some people are like, hi, 
I don't have any money, but how are you? And you're like, oh my God, I literally have to like manage all of these emails now. But um, the the wins you get from that is it, it's quite surprising. Like the people, and as Dominique said, like you've worked with them a lot of the time. They know you, they understand you. They, they kind of, that element of trust is already there, which is really nice. Um, and because we kept it a, a kind of collection of private individuals as well, and um, they're really trusting of us. And actually, since we raised and um, we closed the round at kind of the end of the summer, um, we keep them updated monthly um, with how the business is doing. Um, we send them, you know, wins that we've had, exciting things that are happening in the business, but they are not breathing down on it by any stretch of the imagination, which is, I think it's, if we'd gone with anybody else, um, that would have been quite stressful for the stage that the business is at. So um, the fact that we know them and that kind of level of trust is there was really, really important. Um, all bar our lead investor, who is the guy that we met through, the woman that saw our talk, um, and he's just been amazing. And that's all because we said yes to a coffee, basically. And now he's basically acting like our CFO. Um, so yeah i think just you've got to just be willing to be out out there and i know that out there is a really weird term but you kind of know what know what it means when you're in it because you you literally just have to say yes to everything yeah and i think i would say as well like we almost learned the hard way um about oh, taking yeah. institutional money and giving too much control away i mean if you're raising anything less than 500k i would say you should not be giving any rights away like people tried to cap how much we could spend per month you know salaries when we could hire people you know that there are at an early stage people do try to get a bit bullish because they kind of know that you're desperate but you know, unless you're raising serious money, you should not be giving away any control. If you are a co-founder, you know, your your pool of power is diminished even further. So you definitely don't want to then bring in external people. Um, you know, at this point, people are investing in you and not in your business. And if they're trying to put those straps of control over your business, it means that they don't trust you, which means that the working relationship would never be, you know, gratuitous for either of you so i think if someone's really resistant to letting you still run the business the way that you want they're probably not the right investor for us for you um and we made some tough calls you know we said no to money um and it was a bit scary at the time but looking back like oh my god you know the decisions that we've had to make post raising if we had to run that by someone our business would just be it would just be so much for so much so so much more frustrating sorry um and it just wouldn't allow you to run the business and grow it in the way that you want so yeah definitely like don't at this you know if you're doing a first seed round don't take institutional money even until you're raising like multiple million dollars million pounds don't take institutional money because it comes with so many conditions so much baggage and they charge so many fees that you end up, you know, you raise 150K and you end up with 120 in your bank. So, yeah, just try and stick with angels and private investors where you can. And go with your gut as well. Um, so, like, the situations that Don's mentioning, like, obviously walking away from money when you feel, when you're like, oh, my God, we, we really need it is really hard. Um, but if something doesn't feel right, then you've got to... Um, You've got to just just like trust trust that instinct because these people you know you will be working with them um as much as little as um much in, like input as they have um they will be legally bound to you and if something feels off with the relationship or they don't feel like they're in line with your vision what you want to do with the business then i would say you know be bold to kind of step away from that um the right thing will come along and don't make decisions based on um like for want of a better word desperation short-term um, cash yeah exactly like something like it will you'll it will end up catching you up and it won't it definitely won't be worth it and i also think like from all of these meetings you learn so much and you're given so much advice and it can be really difficult to understand whose advice to take and we were given so many um, people particularly meeting with VCs um, a lot of the time wanted to kind of push us down from like random often tech focused routes so they'd be like my god what a fantastic idea have you thought about like 
you know, subscription boxes, blah, blah, blah. And like, we were like, well, no, that's not our business model. Our business model is really simple. It's been around for actually hundreds of years. Like we're just selling products. Like, but they were kind of trying like desperately and particularly VCs who have like a tech focus as well. You know, they wanted us to be the new like Uber, but for beauty, if you know what I mean. And the fact is that's not our business model. So um, again, you have to kind of stick your guns with some of the advice that you're given and actually, you know, if, if you believe in your business model, which you should, um, then you know, know when to kind of say no to people who might be advising otherwise. And that can be tricky because sometimes you're like, oh, maybe they're right, you know, maybe that. But no, maybe we should be the next <laughs> Uber for beauty. <laughs> so, no, <laughs> you're like, no, 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 go back. Yeah, like rewind. <laughs> We're just going to sell these to people for money and that's going to. Yeah. <laughs> With our really high profit margins. <laughs> like, yeah. They're not, VCs aren't interested in profitability or gross profit margins. They just want like the next big thing. They don't really care about actual like relevancy of revenue or anything like that. It's quite amusing in a way because they're the ones with all the big money. But Yeah. And then other um, like uh, financing that we've looked at, um, we looked at um, crowdfunding, um, but, uh, you know, we didn't, we decided not to pursue that. So I guess we can't comment that much on it, but for the stage of the business that we were at, um, we figured that actually kind of running a crowdfunding campaign would probably distract us from the work that needed to be done. We were almost a little bit too late for that. Um, and we felt like it would probably just not be worth our while for the money that would be raised. Um, so we didn't kind of go too far down that line. Um, we have, yeah, as, as Dominique mentioned, um, kind of along the way secured a couple of loans. Um, one for our bank which was you know handy kind of short-term cash if you need it um and then we have also explored um invoice financing as well um so when you get to the point of um larger or kind of securing larger wholesale deals you can actually basically be given the money up front for an invoice um now the pros of that is that when you do start working with large retailers you'll realize that their payment terms are ridiculous um, and they don't actually pay on time. So even if they say they're going to pay within 30 days, they don't. Um, and you'll be chasing them. And, you know, if you're kind of running your cash flow based on um, specific dates for these invoices to come in, um, it can start to become quite problematic if they're then not paying on time. So invoice financing works quite well for that because there are companies out there that take your invoice, they basically take the debt from you um, and for a fee they give you the money up front and then they kind of look after the chasing of the invoice payment. Um, so we haven't gone ahead with that but that's like a very strong um, kind of option for us and it's definitely on the cards and it's probably something that we'll use should we need to um, if cash flow does get a little bit sticky. Yeah, I guess that the, the position that we're in now is that we've raised money, we've had an initial valuation on the business, which, you know, I think was good for the stage that we were at. Um, we definitely need to raise more money, but we're trying to delay that for essentially as long as possible so we can, you know, get the highest valuation as possible. So it hasn't been too much time since since we last last raised. And I think Elsie and I are the kind of entrepreneurs that want to seem you know, that we, it shows that we can actually run a business rather than just constantly just raising money every time we run out of it. Um, and I think, you know, the business that we have is, again, as I said, you know, it can be profitable. It has high margins that we can work with. So we kind of just want to, yeah, challenge ourselves and try and make it a really good business before we then go out and try and raise more money and just keep padding the bank account with cash and giving away equity. So... Yeah, that's the kind of the position we're in and our next raise will very likely be another round of private individuals um, through EIS and it might be anywhere between 500k and a million pounds, um, we'd say, just to propel our growth um, quite quite quickly, I would say. Yeah, and so the next like three, four, five months for us is about proving revenue, basically. Um, so... So that's <laughs> another great question. Oh, I have one more thing to say, um, which is we used a platform called Seed Legals. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> Here's another question. <laughs> oh, institutional money. I think we going to answer that. Institutional money is any money that doesn't come from a private individual. So whether it's a fund, a VC, a private equity, you know, if you ever get that, it's anything that is not coming from one person basically and it often comes with a, con a very long contract and loads of kind of parameters around it so it tends to be um more kind of like restrictive money in a way so 
that's what institution money is. Um, uh, Seed Legals is amazing. It's a platform where essentially for your, I think even up to a million pounds, um, if you're raising any of that kind of money, it's essentially a platform that has generated um, kind of standard shareholder agreements, term sheets, um, that are kind of customizable, but there's there's a definite template to them, but they're very much in favor of the founder. Um, and it's a great way if you're doing a private round not to spend tons of money on legal fees. I think the entirety of a term sheet and shareholders agreement and all associated paperwork was 1,500 pounds, which when you go to any law firm, you're looking at between three and 5K. Um, and it's a great online platform where all of your investors can create profiles, log in, sign everything electronically. You can do like cap tables, you can do kind of forecasting of um, dilutions and stuff like that. You can set option pools. And the people that run seed legals are always on hand through chat or phone um, to, yeah, basically help you out with any questions. Um, and it's a great way to do your first round really cost effectively, particularly if you're taking friends and family money as well, because you don't want to be spending loads of money on legal fees and generating, you know, shareholders agreements from scratch when, um, Sorry, I'm having a bit of a cup of <laughs> um, Yeah, you don't need to generate shareholders agreements from scratch at that like seed stage. And they're both specifically set up for like EIS, EIS, SDIS, and EIS. So, yeah. So, I've unmuted myself because I'll, I'll, I'll read the questions out for you because they've been streaming. <laughs> they've been streaming in. Um, so, I'm going to start off. Well, I'm going to start at the top. So, Carmen came in straight away within seconds of you starting <laughs> with quite a few questions. The first one that she's got is around the um, elevator pitch. And did you have to prepare one? Were you expected? Can you tell us what it is? What are your top tips around nailing that side of this? Um, I mean, I guess we gave you like the longer version of our elevator pitch. That's <laughs> like if you're like in an elevator for like this. 10 minutes, yeah. <laughs> um, I think we, I mean, our elevator pitches, um, basically we're a community driven uh, natural beauty brand with effective ingredients at the heart of everything that we do. Um, we, if you secure meetings with investors, um, you've usually got half an hour to an hour of their time. So um, I don't think like you need to get hung up on, you know, sort of nailing those 10 second kind of pitches because you've already kind of got their like spark their interest. And I think um, being in beauty kind of does half the work for you at the moment. Um, beauty is a great market to be in right now, a great, great industry to be in right now. Um, people are falling over themselves to invest in beauty brands, which is good news for all of us. So in a way, the kind of hook for us um, was telling people that we were a beauty startup. Um, people were already like, okay, I want to hear a natural beauty startup. Those kind of like the buzzwords that um, that definitely acted as a hook for us. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have to go to meetings incredibly prepared. I guess the first bit of prep that you'll do is your deck. Um, so work through that, show as many people as you possibly can, get as much feedback as you possibly can. Half the time it's conflicting and some people say this and some people say that. So there is an element of kind of going with your gut. Um, try and get your hands on as many um, pitch decks that you can um, to see how other companies are doing it. Um, and again, this is all about like what we were saying at the beginning, like just ask as many people. You'll be surprised by how many people will be like, oh, actually, um, I've got a mate who's fundraising. I'll send you there. You know, like people, people like just ask the question, basically. Um, nail your deck. And then um, in terms of prep for actual meetings, once you've got them, I mean, yeah, you, you need to know your business inside out. And to an extent, you need to know your numbers inside out. Um, you, it's depending on like, what sort of stage you're at, you will get grilled um, on varying aspects. And the numbers do come up at some point. I think given if you're as early as we were, like you probably get off a little bit lightly. Like there's not that much to talk about. <laughs> um, but things like forecasting, just make sure you understand why you've said the things that you said. And I, I guess all of that's really like really quite mm. obvious. Um, if you don't have any revenue, for sure you'll need a cash flow forecast. And yeah, I guess because we kept changing the amount that we were raising as well. Um, 
our, our forecast was sometimes a little bit all over the shop and that def, like that definitely got noticed by some people so again like make sure that you've got like the forecast that's suitable for that meeting and make sure you know because like if you've remembered another figure on a different forecast and you know they're like how much are you going to spend on marketing in the first year and you're like oh 300k and then you're then that number is different in your forecast you know just make sure you know what you're presenting for that meeting and make sure you know your cash flow forecast quite well if you don't have any revenue um i was going to say something else oh i think in terms of an elevator pitch i think that comes into play more when you're emailing people when you're cold emailing like don't just attach a deck and be like hey i think you might like this and attach a deck like you do need like a bit of a like a hard hitting statement when you cold email people um so again just you know spend some time crafting like a really strong email that's not too long but definitely gets like your usps across and you can pique someone's interest and then attach your deck um so people that you know are interested to kind of investigate further so i would say that's when an elevator pitch comes into play more so than you know actually getting stuck in an elevator with an angel mm -hmm. and just doing like oh hey i've got business <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to take us on to the next one. Um, so how did you get your company evaluated? Did you have to do that by an external as part of this process? Is that done by an external or is that an evaluation done by yourself? So the way that we valued our company is we decided how much we were going to raise and how much we wanted to give away and that was our valuation. It's like very, very finger in the air. And I think if you read any interviews with angel investors or any advice when you're seed raising, it's like it's really up to you to set your market value and you just have to have justifications. So the best thing you can have is comparables. So if you know another business similar to you raised X amount, um, for X amount, that's that's like best case scenario. But we didn't really have that. We again, we were very finger in the air. But I guess we kind of knew what we wanted to give away, um, and we tried to argue for a valuation that matched that, which eventually we did more or less get, um, which was good. And I think Clean Beauty Co was a massive asset to us in the early stages of fundraising because it was an intangible asset that no one could really place a value of on. Um, but we could argue that it added a lot of monetary value to our business um, because we have a social media following, we have website traffic, we have an email subscriber list, you know, we have engaged users. And there's no way to really evaluate that in a tangible way, but it definitely, you know, allows you to argue for a higher valuation. So, you know, if there's anything that you can pull together in terms of, you know, your engagement or your social media following, um, for sure that will be an asset to you further down the line. When Dom says how much we want to give away, we're talking about equity. So I'm just reading like the next bit of the question. Yes. So yeah, so, yes. so, so we're talking about equity in that stage. So yes, if you get investors on board, they will um, generally expect, I mean, the kind of traditional um, fund, uh, equity fundraising investor will um, give you money in exchange for equity, so a percentage of your business. Um, and your valuation kind of comes into play there because your valuation is basically saying our company is worth this amount, which means that I, as an, an, as an investor, I'm going to give you this amount, so that's worth 1% because I know how much your company's worth, if that makes sense. So what we did was kind of work backwards from that. So we said, you know, we know that we need to raise uh, like a pound and we only want to give away 10% of our business. So we therefore know that our business is worth 10 pounds. Is that right? 100 pounds? 10 pounds? 10 pounds, yeah. 10 pounds. Uh, so you basically just like multiply it up. Um, so, you know, when you get kind of further down the line and when you've got like really proven um, revenue history, that's when um, there are kind of actual... Um, what's it called, formulas on working out um, you, how much your business is worth when you don't have anything, uh, which we didn't. We weren't really turning over anything at the time. Um, we had a vision and we had a, a sturdy forecast. Um, that's when it's like far more finger in the air. And actually, that's when you really get a chance to kind of fight for a much like higher valuation um, because there's less that they can come back with with hard facts. You know, it's more about investing in the dream, the vision, the people than what the business is doing um, currently. So um, you've got to just use a lot of your charm, basically, um, to get these people on board. And when it comes down to it, you know, you end up arguing over a couple of percent. Like, it's, you know, it's neither here or there. I think investors will be happy to kind of, like, move on 
on a couple of percent here or there um, at, at the beginning um, if they believe in you and they believe in, in what you're doing. So, so different, just to be clear, different investors may have different equity. Not every investor who invested with you got the same share. That's it depends how much they buy. Yeah. We, set, we set the valuation. We said this is, how, this is how much our company is worth. How much would you like to buy of that? Yeah. And the people that had 10 grand, we said, well, our company is worth this much. So for 10 grand, we're going to give you X percent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the person that has 50 grand is obviously going to buy much more. Yeah. yeah. Someone's yeah. essentially buying a bit of your business. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And how do they receive their, do they get dividends? How does that work out? Is it some kind of yearly thing that they're getting back from you? Well, I mean, they're not going to get dividends for a while. You have to be profitable for, um, to like award your directors um, or your investors, your shareholders dividends. Mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't get caught up on that at this stage. Really what they're buying into is the prospect of their money growing, basically. Well, not basically. Yeah, that is why. They're giving you money um, in exchange for a certain percent because the view is that that percentage is going to be worth a lot more once the business is, is, has grown. Um, I wouldn't get caught up on promising anything else to your investors at the moment because you, like, realistically, you're just not. If, you're at the, if you guys are at the stage that we were and still are at, you know, there's no way that we're going to be, like, putting quarterly bonuses in their pocket for, for a long time. So. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know if we'd ever do that because we would want to use the profits of the business to grow it further. Until we're, you know, a publicly listed company and we're massive, you know, you won't expect dividends for a long time from a startup. And people don't expect that. They... I think with beauty, people are hoping for a relatively quick sale, and that's what they're banking on. So, you know, a three to five year return on their money, potentially when the business sells or is acquired by someone else. Um, I think people that are in it for the short game of hoping to get dividends in the next six months, you know, again, they're probably just not the right investor for you, or they're certainly not investing in the right kind of business. And um, just going back to those two schemes that you mentioned, was it SEIS? Yeah. And EIS. Yeah. They are schemes based here in the UK or are they international schemes or the UK. Yeah, UK. you have to be then the the investor has to be a UK taxpayer to benefit from them and you have to be a UK based business. Mm -hmm. Um so SEIS is the seed version of that. So that's the first hundred and fifty grand that comes into your business from an investor. That investor, if they are a UK taxpayer, um, or group of investors is entitled to 50% of the money that they've given you back through um, a tax relief. So HMRC basically just give it back to them. Um, so that, that may, I mean, that is just, if you've got, as we were talking about earlier, like a group of people with 10, 20 grand who are thinking they might want to start investing in a couple of companies, if you say to them, look, you give us 10 grand, HMRC give you 50% of that back in your next like self-assessment basically. So they're, so they're actually only investing five grand. So already that, and then if the business was to go under, they would get a further 50% of that back anyway. So in that scenario, they would get another 200 or 2,500 back from HMRC. So actually the risk is only 2,500 in a 10K investment. It's, it, it's an incredible scheme. Um, and just like most of the people that you're talking to will know about it, but always just chuck that in there. By the way, we're SEIS eligible. Just just kind of like make sure that everybody knows. It is getting harder though. I read an article that now for the advanced assurance, which is kind of like a pre-application for SEIS, because there's not all businesses that are eligible, like some services, there are certain kinds of businesses that aren't eligible for SEIS. If you've got a product business, it's, you're fine. But now if you want to kind of do the pre-application that a lot of investors ask for when they're about to, you know, make a decision, you actually have to list all the investors um, kind of pre that application. So you almost like it's kind of a chicken and egg scenario because a lot of people won't commit until they until you've got that um, advanced assurance. But then now you can't get that advanced assurance until you have commitments. So it is getting harder, and I imagine because so many people are taking advantage of it, I imagine HMRC is going to tighten the reins soon as well. So, again, just if if you're thinking about equity fundraising in the next, like, six months, I would just start that process with HMRC, like, ASAP, really. Cool. Thank you. Right, I'm going down. Um, so, Rebecca said... Um,
it obviously sounds like that you went for um, meetings with all your investors reasonably early. Um, and you're saying, in hindsight, would you have gone when your business was a little bit more developed, or was it well worth getting out there at that early stage and doing it? I mean, we weren't like by the by the time that we went for our equity fundraise, we did have a you know a fleshed out business. We we had commitments from retailers. We you know we were. We were definitely still seed startup, but you know we we had a, a business model and a cash flow forecast that was pretty robust. Um, but if we'd left it any later, for sure, we would have just started to be evaluated on our revenue. So there's a sweet spot between just before you actually start to earn any decent money, um, because as soon as that starts happening, the way that you value your business is completely different, and people will start evaluating you on your revenue, your profit margins, and stuff. So that it is better for a seed raise to do it just before you basically start earning revenue, I would say, because then people can't hold you to that in some way. It's still very kind of finger in the air and you can make your own cases and your own arguments for valuation. And the people that we met with, we may have been too early for then, but we are when we'll come when we come back to our second raise, they're kind of ready, they're waiting for us. So we pretty much got told by like numerous people like not yet you are the amount of times we got told you're too early was like a frustrating amount and at the time we were like we're not we're not we're ready for but um none of those meetings were away because now they know us and then when we go back to them and say oh here we go like we proved we said we've done what we said we were going to do so they're kind of they're ready to get involved in our like our next raise which will be much larger so i don't think any of them is a waste i don't think it's ever too early to start thinking about it it's always going to take much, much, much longer than you think. Much longer, like months longer. Don't underestimate that. If you think you might need money in September, you should be looking now. Like that is realistic. That's how long it took us. So you, so no, it's never too early. Just make sure you, you know what your business is, is uh, obviously, and and where it's going. Angel investors, I think we're assuming that they are obviously a bigger donation, they're, they're, they're a bigger investor. Do they come with certain, uh, what do they expect back from you? I was going to tell you for Rebecca's words, what do they expect back from you for bigger lumps of cash? It really depends. Like it depends on the individual, and that that's what we said earlier. Is that you know our angel investor type of individual? Some were like, yeah, cool. Here's the money. You know, let me know if you need anything. Or some were like, hey, cool. Here's the term sheet, and here's you know how much you're allowed to pay yourself for the next five years. So I mean, it, it really depends on the angel investor. I mean, I guess most of them will will ask for voting rights, but again, it does. Voting rights don't really come into play. You know, as long as you own the majority of the business, voting rights will never come into play. So I guess there's specific thresholds that you need to watch out for. So you don't necessarily want to relinquish. If there's two co-founders, you don't want to relinquish more than 25% um, at your early stage because it means that, you know, between three pools of individuals, or like you, your co-founder and your investors, you suddenly as an individual don't have control anymore. Um, and then when you get to other people owning more than 50% of your business, again, you lose control and they can outvote you on things. But, you know, you'd have to be raising a lot of money or you'd have to be raising money at a very low valuation to be giving away like 50% of your business at your first round. Um, so voting rights, you know, most of them will ask for it, but it doesn't really come into play until you're much, much larger. Um, apart from that, yeah, at sea level, they shouldn't really be asking for much because it's not, in terms of like the investment game, it's not that much money. You know, you're not, you know, 25K, 50K. It's a lot for an individual. There's no doubt about that. And it's amazing to have that money in your business. But, you know, people get a million pounds into their business with like no constraint whatsoever. So don't let anyone pressure you because they're like, well, look, I'm giving you money. Like, you know, you should be grateful or you should be appreciative. Like, stand your ground because there are just like general practices that, you know, of, of that relate to the amount of money that you're investing into a business in terms of what you get back. So unless you're raising a million plus, you shouldn't be giving any control away to anyone. And if, um, if heaven forbid, and if anything went wrong in a relationship with an investor, are there get-out clauses or, are you, or is the deal the deal? 
I mean, you can always offer to buy back the shares that you issue to an investor, but then they have to agree to that. And typically they'll ask for a higher price than what they paid for them. Um, I mean, no, not under really. The, like, under oh, really? Well, that was, that was good. Um, that was nice and easy. Right, okay. If you haven't relinquished any control to them and you haven't given them voting rights, there's nothing that they can really do, on, you know, apart from come and knock down your door. But, like, I mean, they just don't have any legal power to do anything within your business. So that's why something like Seed Legals is a great platform because that shareholders agreement is set up for founders to protect founders, whereas most shareholders agreements are set up to protect the investor. And then we have one more question coming here. Um, how do you become SEIS eligible? So is that the fact that you have to be a UK registered business? Yeah, so the SEIS scheme is only relevant to the UK. So if any of your business is overseas, then it, it, it doesn't um, qualify. You just have to, you basically apply to HMRC. So you send an application off to HMRC. If you just Google, you know, SEIS advanced assurance, it, it's like a form that you fill out. You tell them about your business. They write you. But this is the thing that I was saying is now you actually have to put down your list of investors on the application form. Um, so you basically have to already have identified like individuals that are willing to invest in your business. Um, but basically you send that form off about a month later, um, HMRC sends you a letter back and they say that, yep, you're um, eligible for SEIS. And then you close your round. And then once you have your shareholders agreement and, um, you know, all of your uh, share certificates and stuff, you send that off to um, HMRC and then they will issue like a form back to all of your investors that they basically use when they get their tax refund. Right. Okay, that's good. And I'm, I just want to flick back. Um, I think I, I think I've got. If, if I've missed anybody's questions, please can you stick them in again and just draw my attention to them on the chat box. But I was just going to go back to um, pitch decks. I nearly said desk, pitch decks. So for anybody who doesn't understand a pitch desk deck, this is a document that you pull together which embodies essentially it's your pitch, it's, it embodies your business. Does it need to it contains financials or is it very sort of top line? Not at this stage, but some some businesses, many businesses will, but again going back to the stage that we were at, um, no, it didn't. We didn't. We didn't. Um, can like we didn't put in any of our actual financials. Um, we may have kind of cited forecasts and you know where we're hoping to be and what we would hope to spend the money on, but um, we didn't have the actuals there. So um, at that stage, no. But if you do, then yeah, great. Definitely put them in there. So you've got to use that to um, essentially catch the attention of any of the investors and you need to give them in there the reason that you're the company to back. So, for instance, you, you're talking about the fact that you've got the clean beauty company platform and how um, incredible that was for you because of the social media following, um, the interaction and engagement that you get on social media. That was really important for you. So any brands who are going to go for investment and in this way, they need to have some kind of level of engagement behind them to, to push forward in these pitch decks and then to obviously discuss with investors as well. I think it, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely helps. Like, you don't have to be a socially kind of driven beauty business. That's not, you know, if that's not your selling point, then that's not your selling point, and that's fine. For us, we just had that to hand, basically. You know, as I mentioned, we'd started two years prior by being purely on social without a product line. So we just basically harnessed that and used that to our advantage. So where we didn't have financial figures, we did have social following and monthly like website uniques and quotes from journalists and things like our book, um, which are all kind of, you know, much softer, but still hold a lot of clout if you're a very, very early stage business. So if you do have um, kind of social stats and they are important and if you are thinking about fundraising and you do have a social presence then you know I spend some time really cultivating that and really focusing on growing things like engagement and following and making sure that you have that kind of presence there um, but you know if your business isn't about that at all then I wouldn't sort of shoehorn it in if it's not if it's not relevant um, it's just in our situation was hugely relevant because that's how the business started and 
you know, we have two sets of social media platforms because we basically have two brands. So they were useful stats to kind of fill in the gap where we didn't have a revenue, like, figures to talk about, basically. Cool. That's brilliant. Right, hold on a moment. Right, everyone's, everyone's unmuted, so if anybody does want to add anything in before we um, finish off, um, chip in now, because you can, you can actually have a voice now. <laughs> no, it looks like we've had everything answered. Oh my God, that was really, 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 really exciting. Thank you so much. Um, I will be putting links, I will, as soon as this is finished, um, I'll do the video and get that posted. But I'll also just go and get you some links for um, these schemes and seed legals and things like that and stick that in the hub for you guys. So you should go to just access them really quickly there and rather than having to Google those yourself. So give me an hour or so and they'll all be in afterwards. Um, and for any of you outside the UK, have a look because there will undoubtedly be schemes similar to this in your own in your own countries it's worth having a look and seeing what else is available for you um in your you know in your own countries um, as well and obviously the main uh main things we've been talking about will apply to you wherever you're doing your your investing it's just finding the right scheme in your country cool okay any marks i don't want to hold any uh, cut anybody yes rebecca just a really quick one um, loving what you're doing and just wonder how long have you been going? So Clean Beauty Co is two and a half years and Bybe is six months. So it's quite new still isn't yeah. it? You yeah. Know, and you've, you've, you've hit a huge amount of um, a massive audience and you're, you're very much in the public eye. It's amazing. Thank you. Yeah that's well again that's a, a currency. I mean I would say you know social media is used as a currency these days so we've, we're kind of try and maximize that as much as we can so we'll we'll stick our faces on any any opportunity <laughs> like yeah we'll be there yeah. i mean we had some amazing things happen to us like you know we got picked up by a publisher and we had a book published by penguin and when you walk into a room full of investors and you slap down a book with your name on it like that has gravitas no matter what setting you're in so you know we had some really powerful tools um in our arsenal which were hugely impressive to, to investors. So, and I think it just showed traction. And I think any early stage investor will just be looking for traction and proof of concept. You know, you don't have to be earning tons of money, but to show that, you know, your idea is viable and there's a, a growing market for it is, is the best thing that you can do. And any assets you can bring to the table like that will be beneficial. Steph, do you want to ask your question? You just whacked one in uh, last, but you can ask it if you want, if you want to unmute yourself. She's thinking about it. Is it what things should be? Oh, she's yeah. like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she always does this. Yeah. She's very nice. I don't think I don't know like the one. <laughs> I know that would be like shush. <laughs> Yeah, that was us. We were like writing our book while we were still working. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, like writing recipes. And anyway, um, <laughs> what should be included in the pitch deck? Um, so our pitch deck, our pitch deck. Um, most people said it was too long. Um, it was too long. It was really long. It was like thirty slides or something. But we just had a lot to say. Um, we could probably go back and cut it. So we had like an intro to us as individuals. So like our backgrounds, um, places that we'd worked. Um, yeah, like that bit was quite difficult because a lot of pitch decks that we saw people were like, you know, found like CEO founded like by another startups, and we were like, oh, but you just talk talk yourself up basically and talk up your professional background as an individual because that's what investors will be really you know investing in. Um, and then we talked about a kind of brief history of how we started. Um, we talked a bit about the market and the current size of the market and our kind of the size of the opportunity for us. Um, we touched on our sort of plans and how we'd spend the money and um, so a little bit into um, what we wanted to spend on marketing um, and sort of growing the presence of the brand um, a little bit about where we've been picked up so far you know press quotes um, a little bit about the book um, and yeah that was it basically but it was it was quite long <laughs> It'll probably be a little bit shorter this time um but i think the key is like your story 
um, the kind of size of the opportunity they'll definitely expect to see. And then like, you know, why you, like why your company, like your USP, yeah, kind of why, why you over competitors. Um, ours looks really nice as well, which I think helps like, we, we made it really pretty. Like, it was, and I think that kind of, you know, people quite like that. Um, that sort of like, yeah, nice colours, like lots of pictures. Like, <laughs> we slapped our faces all over. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that's basically it. But I mean, if you Google um, like pitch decks, there are tons and tons of examples online um, and kind of like examples of formats and that kind of thing. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> questions that that come up afterwards feel free to um like drop us a note um rachel can pass on our emails or just like um go to clean beauty or by the instagram if you direct message us there like more than happy to help and good luck with your businesses um, yeah it was lovely to talk to you all <laughs> Delivers Community is a place for beautypreneurs across the globe to network, learn and share. You're invited to join in on Facebook, Instagram and sign up to Rachel's special email group to receive weekly blogs packed full of expert tips. Visit IndieBeautyDelivers.com to sign up.